I had a terrific Christmas break. I got to watch a lot of movies. Took some time to do some Netflix binging. And one of the things that Carolyn and I did was, over the holidays, watch the new Jennifer Garner action flick. I'm a huge JG fan. Um, And not because she's lovely and talented. There are unlimited number of lovely and talented people in the world. It's for two really great reasons. Uh, One is the paparazzi take pictures of her going to church every week, which I think is really cool. If you're going to get stalked by the paparazzi, that seems the place to be. And then secondly is, she's from West Virginia, and you can always see her sporting her flying WVU hat. I love that woman. That's where my allegiance to Jennifer Garner begins. And, uh, and it happens that... Uh, Uh, She had to do quite a bit of work to transform from being the mom of kids, having had babies. She's now in her mid-40s. This latest action flick, she like got ripped. And uh, she Instagrammed uh, how one uh, turns the recipe from turning a mom back into an action lady. And she said, uh, take one mama, add daily dose of one hour of body by Simone, one and a half hour of stunt teamwork, 50 cups of coffee, and three minutes of cryotherapy. Now, I've, somebody who's trying to be fit, I, I've analyzed this. The cryotherapy, you've got to have money to be around people who can actually spend that time. It's, you get freezing in a big freezing tube. And so that's not in my wheelhouse. Coffee I can do. Um, uh, an hour and a half with my stunt team working on my martial arts skills. Don't have a stunt team, so that's off the chart. Um, and one hour of Body by Simone. Let me unpack that for you. Simone uh, is Simone de la Rue, who runs this uh, super Hollywood woman fitness center over in um, uh, Brentwood. And uh, I can only imagine what an hour of personal fitness time in my personal studio of my house with Body by Simone would cost. Um, I can tell you there's a huge benefit to having a personal trainer. I mean, you can look online and they'll tell you it's accountability, it's, it's a, a right instruction, it's, it's all the things that you would think would come with somebody who's like a top shelf trainer coming to your home to say... Uh, I'd like to work with you. Um, so I guess it's my point this morning is I'm never going to be an action star like Jennifer Garner, but if you ever wondered what it takes to become one of those Hollywood celebrities, you have to have unbelievable genes, and then you have to have this crazy sort of work ethic and money to pay for it all. Um, I do have a methodology for getting fit, um, and that is the uh, group class I attend at Anytime Fitness. And it has been everything that I have needed. It's a support group. It's accountability. But as a social person, it's that I get to have relationships and I kind of know everybody by name. If I had to do this on my own, I'll do it for a little while, but then I'm going to poop out. I'm going to drift away. And uh, this is the common experience of a lot of people who make New Year's resolutions to be physically fit or stop smoking or do something. If you don't have support, people around you, there's a really good chance that you're going to drift away. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the phenomenon that exists in the New Testament, and of course we've all experienced it in one way or another. 
the phenomenon of people falling away from their Christian faith. At every stage of my experience as a Christian, I became a Christian in high school, so I had a high school group of friends, and then I had a college group of friends. I had leaders in college, and then after college had pastors and people I hung out with when I worked in the local church as a volunteer, then went to seminary, and then had seminary professors and leaders and mentors in my life and people I went to seminary with, and then I worked in my first church, and I was part of a presbytery and had comrades who were working in ministry, and, and, and then I worked for people, and at every facet of my life, including moving on into church planting and then working at a Christian college, at every stage, at every level, I have witnessed people falling away from their faith. And it doesn't seem to matter how long they were perceived to have been walking with the Lord, I, I've seen people wander away. In fact, it was the phenomenon of religiously identified Christians abandoning their faith in college that stirred me to write my only book, that New York Times least seller, Three Tips for Campus Survival. As a pastor at the time of 15 years uh, of college students in one way or another, as a student pastor or as a church planter, uh, I had seen uh, a lot. Um, Carolyn and I both went to college. We both experienced what that pressure would have done to one's faith. I felt I had a perspective to share that would help students prepare not to be a statistic, a high percentage of people who would walk away from Christ once they left the comfort and safety of their parents' homes. I've seen friends at every level of my life fall away because of changing sociological worldviews. They came to different conclusions about what was going to define reality for them. I've seen Christians who said, I'm going to flee from biblical moral standards. I, I'm tired of the constraints of being told I can't follow my natural inclinations towards fill in the blank. Uh, and I've had a number of experience, particularly with young people who were in youth ministry that I was a part of, which has been heartbreaking for me on two levels. One is because I loved them, and two, because I look back and I think I probably didn't very adequately prepare them. They they. They, didn't, they weren't really grounded in what it really means to be a Christian, substantially. And so it's very easily to get led off into what the Apostle Paul called another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And quick footnote, you'll get an email this week, or you can just go online. Um, our blog is up and running at prismchurch.com, and this week I'm going to post my monthly lengthy piece, which of course, why wouldn't you run to that right away? Um, but it's uh, but it, but it's it's going to be about the notion of uh, another gospel, and what that was all about in Paul's language. Um, all this to say, when we talk about people falling away from the Lord, we really won't know until we get to heaven whether or not those who have fallen away were either a genuine believers who tripped and fell and whose fire had almost gone out, but. They're a smoldering wick that the Lord promised he wouldn't snuff out. And there are going to be those circumstances where people uh, die doing something that they weren't supposed to be doing. And that doesn't mean automatically, theologically, that they lose their salvation. 
Um, that's a, a silly methodology of how one would be at peace with God. You're not saved because you never make mistakes, and if the mistake you make causes your death, it's not going to be like the end of it with you. A genuine believer can struggle and struggle till the end of their life in such a way that others might think, eh, I don't even know if they're a believer or not. The antithesis of that is true. There are some people that look the part their whole life. Jesus said there are going to be people on the day of judgment that go, look at all the crud I did for you. And he's going to say to them, I I never knew you. The Apostle John wrote about those people this way in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And oftentimes in the New Testament, when Paul or John or Peter would send out people to extend the ministry, fulfill the Great Commission, go to the ends of the earth, the way they would discern that somebody wasn't of them is when they started teaching something that wasn't what they were told by the apostles to teach. The purpose of Jesus' words today as we study in John 16, 1-15 is very clearly stated from Jesus to keep disciples from falling away. The first three verses of John 16 read like this. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Friend, I can't do a better job of interpreting that than you can. It doesn't get any more clear than that. This is why Jesus in this moment is saying what he's saying. And then he goes to tell his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And boy, was that fulfilled prophetically. Within just a couple of years, the Apostle Paul, who was then known as Saul of Tarsus, we'll study him when we get into the book of Acts next year, or actually next at the end of this year, uh, Paul was persecuting the church, killing Christians, and thought he was doing the Lord's work. The first century church suffered for their faith as Jesus said they would. Roman historian Tacitus records the persecution of the first century church under the Roman emperor Nero like this. Quote, Besides being put to death, the Christians were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clad in the hides of beasts and torn of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight had failed. Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer and drove about in his chariot. Despite these extreme cruelties, Nero's persecution was local and short-lived. However, it was the first official persecution and marked the first time the government distinguished between Christians and Jews. After Nero, it became a capital crime to be a Christian. I mean, it was a death penalty sentence. Although pardon was always available if one publicly condemned Christ and sacrificed to the gods. And this really says nothing 
about the New Testament records regarding the persecutions that happened at the hands of religious authorities and synagogue rulers, which we will get into again later this year. Hence, the writer of the book of Hebrews, writing to Hebrew Christians, spoke with great urgency in an effort not to have those who'd publicly professed that Jesus was the Messiah and Savior recant their testimony. It's in this context that the writer of Hebrews would have penned these words from Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. So it wasn't just a one-time-I-heard-the-gospel kind of thing. It was a, I need to focus on these things. I need to embrace that this is going to have to be a continual exercise in my life. And then he goes on to write, For since the message declared by angels was proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The writer warns of drifting. It was possible then, and it is possible now. It happens when culture begins to pressure you in the same way the first century church was pressured. Social ostracizing. Jesus said they're going to Throw you out of your communities. Culture, societal shame. And maybe a false sense that people are doing the Lord's work in opposing you. This pressure can come in terms of what you believe or what you consider sinful. Additionally, the writer of Hebrews reinforces the means by which we now know what the words of Christ actually were. So if you've ever said, how do we know what Jesus actually said? We've talked about it before. The writer of Hebrews is going to go back to the apostolic authority. He says here at the end of Hebrews 2, look at verse 3 and 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, uh, and it was attested to by those who heard. And then, of course, there's miracles, signs, and wonders. But our rooting is that the Spirit of God was going to illuminate, enlighten, enable the apostles to remember what was beneficial to them. And Jesus is going to assure them, he's going to echo what he said in last week's passage about persecution and the Holy Spirit and explain why he's telling them these things in the first place. See, to alleviate their grief, Jesus assured them that his going away was going to be beneficial to them, to comfort their immediate grief. They were, they were going to need to know that what Jesus was offering as an alternative was, was better for them. And this is the promise of the Spirit. This is the fourth time Jesus has spoken about the Spirit in this last week of his life. And see, it's knowing the context, knowing what's happening And then studying what Jesus said and why he said it. This is the essence of biblical study. So if you're somebody who says, I want to grow as a Christian, and I I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, what do I do? It's very simple. Uh, Look at what Jesus said in the context in which he said it. Ask why he said it. And then ask how it applies to your life. Today he'll give us two very clear purposes of the Spirit's presence in the life of each believer. 
Uh, then he'll echo words again about the nature of his will and how his words would get relayed to us. Do you remember what he said in John 14, 25 and 26? He said, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Jesus is going to refer again to this at the conclusion of John 16 in this Holy Spirit discourse. Jesus emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit so we wouldn't drift away from our faith. Whether it's drifting away like a boat, drifting away from the moorings that would, that would keep us tied to the dock, the biblical teaching of Christianity. Or perhaps it's drifting away from trusting Scripture to guide our life's choices. We're going to learn two important things today about the Holy Spirit's presence in our life from John 16. The first is this. The Holy Spirit is given to us to encourage endurance. This is what Jesus would say. This is one of the purposes of the Spirit. Why it's beneficial for Him to go and the Spirit to come is that it's going to enable, encourage endurance. Jesus says, but now I'm going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. I I love the fact that Jesus says, and this is in concert with what we know and have studied from the beginning of our study in John, beginning with John 1.14, where it says, Jesus came full of grace and truth. And Jesus says to them here in this passage, I know what I'm about to tell you is hard but nevertheless, I'm going to tell you. And, and if you're a parent, you know what this is like. I mean, I know this is hard for you to hear, daughter or son, but you have to get good grades in school. And you have to do what I tell you. Because I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. And sometimes loving somebody is telling them something that they don't really want to hear and they can't appreciate it till they get older and then they look back and go, okay, I'm glad I was a foolish young person and now... I I can see why God gave me the grace of keeping parents up in my face about my grades. That's just one example of many from my life, I can tell you. Have you ever thought to yourself, I wished I could have lived during the time of Jesus and actually walked with Jesus. My faith would be so much stronger. You know, you think if you could have visibly seen the miracles, most of us would have have imagined what it would be like to follow Jesus if we were physically present with him. We'd think it would be better than what we have now. But guess what? That's not true. The disciples are told here by Jesus, it's an advantage to them if he goes away. Why? Well, as we've talked before, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. If you're a Christian, if you're genuinely a person of the Lord, a child of God, you have received the Spirit. The Spirit lives within you indwells you. And so right away, having God's presence inside is better than having it just simply outside. Secondly, though, the power of the Holy Spirit is what sustained Jesus as he faced his temptation in the desert. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 4. It says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to face temptation. And for 40 days, he depended on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what encouraged him to endure. And it's really the same for us. And he says to the disciples, 
It's an advantage to you if you start depending on the Spirit. Look what I've done. I've depended on the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity of which I am substantially a part. This is how I lived in this world. This is how you will live in this world. And if you think about it, just in the, the aggregate, in the, in, the, in the evaluation of the objective evaluation of the life of the disciples in the New Testament, their life pre-Christian, pre-Jesus resurrection in the Gospels and post-Jesus' resurrection in the Acts of the Apostles and in the letters, you can see that the disciples walked physically with Jesus and then they walked in the power of the Holy Spirit and any honest assessment of their quote-unquote success in life and ministry would conclude they were much more effective after Jesus' ascension into heaven and they're being filled with the Spirit. They, they were much more effective. They were much bolder. They, were, they went to their deaths for Jesus. They, they testified boldly under great persecution. They did amazing things, all because they were depending on the Holy Spirit. See, to need an advantage, what Jesus is saying, there's no advantage if I don't go away. It implies a disadvantage or a weakness apart from it. And Jesus is saying that unless the Spirit comes to empower us and encourage us, We will not endure. The disciples did not go into the world to do a mission without cognition, without absolute conscious awareness of the Spirit's presence in their life. And you and I can't do the Christian life without the same. You cannot love Jesus, enjoy Jesus, do the mission of Jesus without daily bathing yourselves mentally, emotionally in the reality of, of the Spirit's presence and power in your life. Jesus said this to them as they launched out in the mission for him in Acts 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is effectively giving them an upgrade. He's saying, it's been great to be with me, I know. Wait till the one with whom I am one, the Holy Spirit, Another, like the Father and I, wait till He comes to indwell you. Nothing like it. You're going to really, really prosper. I, I think about the way technology has improved our lives, and I know there's all sorts of sociological studies about the terrible nature of how technology has made us less present, and blah, blah, blah. It actually enables me to get a lot more done. And as a doer, I can tell you that's very exciting. From an exercise standpoint, I can tell you it's been helpful too. Because I can schedule my classes on my phone. I can go, okay, yes, I will be at class. And better than that, the instructor, Julia, of my fitness class can text me and go, I notice you haven't signed up yet. Now, 20 years ago, when I ventured into like exercise for a season and then just started drifting away, nobody texted me because there wasn't texting. <laughs> you have a cell phone. I mean, that's how quickly things are changing. I mean, now, when you sign up at this fitness, anytime fitness place, they give you all these apps, and you think, oh, how great, and then you realize they can get a hold of me anytime. (laughs) What if I don't want to go to class? (laughs) But it's actually wonderful. Jesus is saying to you and to me, I want to encourage your endurance. Guess what I'm going to do? We're going to get an upgrade. I'm going to leave. It's to your benefit that I do. The Holy Spirit's coming to indwell you. Power, presence. He's with you 24-7. When you sleep, He's with you. He doesn't sleep. He's watching over you. He's filling you. 
He's drawing you. He's loving you. He's saying, wherever you go, workplace, home place, neighborhood, he's with you. This is why it's an advantage. And this is why he encourages endurance. Here's the second thing he says is, at at least in this passage, of the second role of the Spirit, and that would be that the Holy Spirit not only encourages endurance, he enables repentance. Verses 8 through 11 of John 16 say, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Let me unpack the meaning of this. Uh, Again, there are at least two camps in the interpretation of this passage. And I come from a particular slice of the Christian pie called the Reformed Christian view. And so I will readily admit this is how I understand these things. And I believe it's consistent with whatever else, a lot of the other things Jesus said about how we come to faith. He says the Spirit's going to come and there's going to be a conviction. He's going to bring reality to set in about three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the way this normally works for any person who comes to faith is you have to come to terms with the fact that you're sinful and in need of forgiveness. But it's not just that you not ever mess up. The second thing you come to terms with when you deal with and face down a holy God is that you have to actually be righteous. So when we talk about what it means to become a Christian, it's not just a matter of having your sins forgiven and forgetting all about what you've done in the past. To be in the presence of a holy God, you actually have to have a positive righteousness. You, to be holy is not just to not mess up, it's to do everything right too. And we can't do that either. So you have to come face to face with not only am I sinful, but I'm not righteous. And now I've got to go to judgment. And so at judgment, we go, uh, I got nothing. And this is what the gospel is saying. I'm not only, Jesus says, I'm not only going to forgive you, I'm going to impute, I'm going to credit you with my righteousness. Jesus fulfilled the law, every pen of it, every stroke of it, so that you would have a right standing before God and be able to face judgment. Sin, righteousness, judgment. The Spirit of God comes. They don't, we don't naturally believe. We need Jesus to go to the Father and present Himself as the righteousness that justifies us, that makes us acceptable. And then we can take great comfort in the fact that we will not be judged that the evil one has been judged, that we have been, if we are in Christ, freed from the fear of judgment. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit is, is part of this understanding, the only thing that can convert a soul. You did not come to Christ in your own strength. The Lord worked in an, in an amazing way somehow in your life, and it's different for everybody. Some people, like my wife, were raised by Um, parents who understood Christianity and believed the Bible, and she prayed at a very early age that she'd know Christ. Others come to Christ in their adult life with no church background whatsoever. 
But they come not because they were being super spiritual and looking for it, but instead because God sent a messenger, a friend, to reach them, and they were intrigued. Maybe at first a little irritated, but they heard the gospel. Maybe that's you, and you thought, okay, I'll listen more. And then all of a sudden now you're being drawn in. And so many can make this testimony that the Lord worked in my life. He may have done it through the origin of my family, or he may have done through the relationships that he brought along my way. And even if you say, you know, I was independent on a desert island all by myself, just me and my Bible, I would ask you, what made you bring the Bible? And, and so you have to look back and just be sort, you have to be amazed as a Christian. How did this happen? How is it that my life got arranged this way? Additionally, there's a conviction that comes upon the Christian that, that brings us to our senses so that we see our sin and enables us to recognize Jesus is able to cleanse us from our sin. And this is the only way that we as Christians move forward, is, is we see our need, our desperate need for Christ. 17th century Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Uh, The Apostle Paul told the Philippians that they're to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And I'll quote him, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, it's God that is doing the work in us. Uh, When we desire to change, it's the Spirit producing the will to turn to God. Buck Parsons from Ligonier Ministries wrote this, quote, Repentance is a gift. It's an act that the Holy Spirit works in us, resulting in an act that flows out of us. Although it is our act, it does not originate from within us. In fact, in our naturally stubborn, rebellious hearts, the whole notion of repentance is foreign. It is granted to us by God Himself. Just as our righteousness is a foreign or an alien righteousness from Christ, so is our repentance. We would not even conceive of such a thing left to ourselves. Instead, we would come up with all sorts of excuses for our sin and would point our depraved fingers at everyone else around us. Humans also will never come to faith. Your friends, your family who you'd like to see embrace Jesus, they'll never do it because you argued them into Christianity. People aren't reasoned into Christianity. Reason may be part of eliminating some of the stumbling blocks, but faith is something that comes from within one's heart. If you don't really believe that Jesus came back from the dead, even if you feel like your intellectual objections to why it couldn't have taken place are eliminated, no one can bully you into actually believing it. What Jesus is saying is that it is a good thing that the Holy Spirit is coming to us because His power will not only be what helps us in our mission to encourage others to turn to Him, but He is the continued source for our ongoing turning back to follow Him and repent. What do I mean by this? I mean, friend, we're Christians, but we're still strugglers. We're a long way from holiness, I can assure you of that. Paul and Peter, while better than they were before they were indwelled by the Spirit, Paul and and Peter and John specifically, they were not perfected until they were uh, 
liberated from this world in which their nature was an ongoing source of struggle and the culture was an ongoing source of personal pressure to compromise. You and I, as believers filled with God's Spirit, are going to experience an ongoing sense that we are being challenged to be more like Christ and we have to recognize that we're not. And there are times where we're actively disobedient to Jesus. More so, I would say, that there are folks, and I'm thinking particularly of people whose hearts um, I have a heart for, and that is people who used to go to church. And these might be people, you might be here today, and that might be your experience. This may be the first time you've been back in the you know, ship for a while, so to speak. And, or you may be with people at work and other places, and they're like, you know, I haven't been to church in a long time. I have a real heart for those folks because sometimes you feel like, I just don't desire to do the things that I know I'm supposed to do as a Christian. What do I do? What do I do when I'm in a place where I know God says, don't do this, but I just am compulsively stuck in this pattern? Or I know God says to do this, but I just can't seem to get my butt up off the couch to do it. What do I do then? Here's what I want to encourage you with today. The Holy Spirit is there to enable repentance now as he was when you first were converted to Christ. It's always the Holy Spirit compelling you to pursue Christ more fully. It's always the presence of the Spirit calling you to intimacy and friendship. We've said it before. God's not about moral compliance. He's about relationship. And it's relationship with Him That produces moral compliance. But if you say, I'm this year going to stop doing this and stop doing that and stop doing this and start doing that, but you don't have any intimacy with the Holy Spirit who lives in you, you're missing the point. Jesus is calling you to friendship. In this new year, my wife and I are making adjustments because we're in this really cool stage of marriage. It's cool, but you know, new and challenging. And that is, our kids are now, one of them's out of the house, the other one is on their way out. And, uh, and they're both college graduates this year, and so we're, we're now looking down the balance of our life in a home where it's just she and I and the dogs. And, and when you have a bunch of kids in your house and you're on different schedules, you, you manage to stay connected through the kids, you know, because you're like at their activities together and you're interacting about how you're going to, you know, cart them from place to place and, and for years, Carolyn and I's work schedules have been very different. I, my days off, and especially in 2019, are Monday and Tuesday. Her days off, because she teaches, are Saturday and Sunday. Now, when our kids were in school, I was always at their activities throughout the week, and I was uh, around on weekends for games, and I made sure... So we were, there, was, there was seemingly a lot of connection between Carolyn and I, but what we've discovered in this absence of kids as they've been in college is... We're not seeing a lot of each other these days, or, or we're not getting a lot of one-on-one time. So we went away on a trip for a couple of days over the break, and I really started to connect, and I started to think to myself, you know, if Carolyn is going to remember why she married me in the first place, which of course is critical for my success, <laughs> we're going to have to be super committed to this getting away or at least a weekly date night. And it's not just because that's what good couples do. It's because we fell in love in private. 
And uh, we stay in love by continued pursuit of friendship. No one falls in love with 800 other people around. You fall in love with somebody because you got some one-on-one time and you thought, all right, this person's got my ear. I know them. I'm knowing them. I'm wanting to be with them. We will only fall in love with Jesus in private. You will only grow in love for God. You will only desire to repent when you are close to Him, when you are committed to being in His presence. And that means that there are times where you're going to have to say, I'm going to spend time praying. I'm going to spend time in the Word today, even though, even though I, I know the way I've been acting is not in a way that honors God. The holiness of Christ has been imputed to you. You have been forgiven for your sins, past, present, and future, as a child of God. With that gift, he's saying, I'm looking, I'm calling you to repent, to come into fellowship with me to come into friendship with me. And it is in that place of intimacy that you'll find yourself saying, all right, I'm going to live in a way that honors you. I'm going to do it because I want to love you, not because I'm scared I'm going to go to hell forever or because I think the only way for me to get rich is to start applying these Christian principles for Jesus. This is not about you. It's about growing in him. It's about knowing him. We will only desire to turn back to him when we're in his presence. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He enables repentance. He encourages endurance. And now we're going to look to Jesus' words one final time with regards to the role of the Spirit in working through his word and his presence in our lives to remind us what's true. Jesus concludes his teaching in John 16 by saying this, I still have many things to say to you. That's true for us too. But you can't bear them right now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus has more to say to you, friend. And he's going to have the Spirit through the Word of God and the inspiration of the Spirit as the apostles testify to what Jesus said. And then his presence in your life impressing and and enabling and and, and actualizing those things into your life. This is what Jesus has planned for the Christian to encourage you, to enable you. And one of the ways he does that is by worshiping together. So let's worship this morning and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper and recall what Jesus has done for us.